Hello, and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm Tim Bontemps, national NBA writer for the Washington Post, and we're going to talk today about the Golden State Warriors, who not only are the most popular team in the NBA right now, but just might be the most popular team in all sports. And if you're going to talk about the Warriors, there's no one better to talk to than my friend Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, who covers the Warriors for ESPN.com, and who managed to get back to Oakland despite apparently never learning how to read a map. How are you, Ethan? <laughs> I'm doing okay, and I thank you for helping me through my, my math predicament. It was difficult, it was trying, and hey, it's just good to have a Sherpa in the, uh, in the region of Boston. I'm, I'm glad. I, it's the first time I've ever been called a Sherpa. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad yeah. I can cross it off my list. Can you, can you explain <laughs> to the people what happened the other day? Um, are you talking about the map incident? Is that, is that what you want to know? Is that, is that what you're asking after? Yes, the map incident. I think it can be explained fairly easily in that I can write decently. I'm fairly, as they say, book smart, but I am stupid about a great many things. I mean, that's the summary. That's really just what it is, where I'll be absent-minded, I'll be looking at my map, and I'll lose track of which street is what. And I think I just got into one of those daydreaming while doing a task uh scenarios and uh you were there to capture the humiliation i was me and me and our friend jay king from boston who covers the celtics we were there we went to lunch and we were walking down the street and ethan was trying to get back to his hotel which was about three minutes from where we were and (laughs) basically could not figure out how to read the map on his iphone which he then was turning around (laughs) in all kinds of directions trying to figure out which way to go it was uh it was was the randy whitman as i think somebody pointed out i was flipping the clipboard like it was a pizza like pizza dough now we were talking yesterday what happened um you said you had logistical issues trying to get home from milwaukee um what what happened yesterday i did i don't i'm not sure okay that's a a less interesting story than i think what happened when i got home because what happened when you got home then yeah yeah because the ticket was just canceled for some reason that i had nothing to do with so i just had to figure that out but when i got home so i don't live in um a low crime area I mean, it's not a high crime area either. I live in Oakland. It's an upwardly mobile neighborhood of Oakland, but still it's Oakland. And so I get home last night. I'm just so relieved to get home from the road trip. And around midnight, my dog starts freaking out, just starts barking and going crazy. And I go upstairs. I see a large shape on on my porch. And the shape, I mean, I yell at the shape. I tell the shape that I called the police and to get the, the F out. And the shape disappears, and there's tension, and, you know, uh, we, we, it was just a very tense night. But then the next morning, we see that whatever that shape was, uh, be it human or animal, it unzipped uh, a backpack that my wife left on the porch and had rifled through everything. Now, I think just to rationalize it, she's saying that she thinks it was a raccoon. Now, I feel like I saw a bigger shape than that. And I got to say, no self-respecting city raccoon uh, retreats. When threatened by call, uh, when threatened with calling the police, you know, none, none that I know. Like they stare you down defiantly. But I think just for the sake of a, uh, for the sake of feeling good, maybe I should convince myself of that. First of all, I'm glad that you guys are okay because that was a pretty that's a pretty scary situation. And when you say, when you say there was tension, there there's usually some kind of awkward tension with you at all times. But that <laughs> that uh, yeah, that's that's pretty terrifying. Now, why why was there a backpack on the porch? You just forget to bring it in. I mean, I think she forgot to bring it in, um, and I think she'd spilled something in the backpack and then just didn't want to deal with it and probably should have brought it in, and that, that, was, the, that was the situation. And that definitely supports the raccoon theory, if that backpack was somehow tainted with food of some sort. So that, that was the reason, essentially, uh, for, the, uh, for the backpack out there. Well, let's just hope that it was a raccoon because that's better anyway all the way around. Now, you, yeah. you you bring up the travel thing. You're you're kind of an accidental beat writer, I think it's fair to say, right? You, I mean, you you got you've been covering the Warriors for several years now. You used to write for Warriors World, and uh, now you now you write for ESPN.com, do a great job covering the team. But this this wasn't exactly the path that you you necessarily thought you'd be falling into. So I, I guess I'm curious what what have you liked about it and what what has been the uh the biggest adjustment for you so far yeah you're, you're right about that the expectation wasn't that i would be traveling to this extent it's just that this team has captured so much interest that they need a body on the situation now the thing i like about it most as you well know uh you get access and experiences on the road that you can't really get at home and you are seen differently by the team once you're on the road it just changes the, the dynamic a lot 
the stuff I don't like about it. Obviously, travel is difficult. That's given me a new perspective, too, on the NBA. It's easy when you're watching guys on TV uh, to say, why aren't they doing this or why aren't they doing that, and to dismiss all that goes into what they're doing. And you get a better sense when you're on a two-week road trip of just how brutal the NBA schedule is, just what a grind it is. And I feel like I've learned uh, through some pain. I've, I've learned how difficult that is just a little bit, even though I'm obviously not the one out there sweating and actually playing. The travel itself is quite difficult to deal with. So I think the upside is the access, and the downside is just travel and all the disorienting uh, patient straining aspects to it. No, I totally agree about that, and I think that's something that a lot of people who um, don't get the chance to do the jobs that we do don't necessarily realize. Um you know, the Warriors obviously won the first 24 games of the season. Uh, we were both in Boston for the last win of that streak. They then lost on Saturday in Milwaukee. And I think a lot of people, you know, they see the Warriors are this great team and they just assume, well, they're just going to roll through and beat all these teams that are around 500 at the end of this road trip in the Eastern Conference. And they fail to remember that the Warriors at that point had traveled, I think, you know, six or 7,000 miles in two weeks. They would played seven games, they hadn't been home in two weeks. Um, they had a couple injuries and you just you forget if you're not around the team and you don't travel like that, like guys like me and you get tired by the end of two weeks. And we're just kind of going from city to city and, you know, maybe working out a little bit and not, you know, trying to play 48 minutes and guarding the best players in the world and, you know, playing double overtime games um, like they did against, against the Celtics last Friday. And I do think that that's a perspective that people that don't get that opportunity maybe don't realize that that the travel, you know, despite the, the fact that they're flying on charter flights and they're staying in um, five star hotels a lot of the time, um, it it is a really difficult thing that a lot of people um, can't really relate to unless they actually have to live it. Definitely, and also you could tell at the end of that streak they weren't playing their best basketball. And there was this odd contrast of the basketball was getting worse, but they were pulling out these victories, so the accolades and the praise is growing. And the other funny thing that I think people wouldn't necessarily expect is just how euphoric and how happy they were at the end of the road trip, despite losing. I think some of that was the unburdening of all that came with the streak, and some of it is just, maybe you feel this, I certainly feel this. At the end of a road trip, you're just happy. You're just really happy at the end of the road trip, no matter what happened. Oh, totally, totally. Everybody, everybody is happy to go home at the end of a two-week trip. Everybody, everybody's ready to 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 get away, and and that's for the media with the team, the team with the media, the the media with each other, the players with each other. Everybody is ready to go home and just be away from everybody because you're you're living with all. You're just living as a group for two weeks. You know, even the media at that point, like you know this. You know, obviously the Warriors have had a ton of media attention but you know when you're when you're at the end of a, a trip like this you know these guys go from city to city but they know you and you know rusty simmons and diamond like the guys who cover the team they know you guys better than the people anywhere else so you know you're kind of just part of the group and it's just like that for a couple weeks and you know by the end of it you know it's you, i know you, i think you guys have what two or three days between saturday's game i think you play again wednesday right the Warriors? oh dude Dude, five games in seventeen days. Right, I, which I'm is great. So happy about this. Yeah, no. So that that's uh, no, that's a that's a welcome thing, and, and you're totally right that it's uh, that's the way that's the way every beat is, and every team is. When you you get off a two week road trip, no matter if you go seven and zero or six and one or two and five, it's you know you're ready to kind of get away from everybody for a bit. So you, you mentioned the streak, and let let's talk about that for a minute. Um, you know you you've been at basically every game this season. What what was the most impressive part about this streak to you? I think, hmm, if I'm going to isolate a moment as opposed to just a trend of the streak and how well they were playing and how maybe the most impressive moment... Uh, okay, the most impressive thing generally was their ability to do this with Luke Walton because there was a lot of doubt in the organization about whether he was the guy. And there's this funny thing where uh, a lot of people might say that Luke Walton's success is an indictment of Kerr and proof that coaching does not matter. And the irony of that is that Luke, in this role, was a big bet by Kerr. That was him spending his political capital in the organization. Because in the organization, they wanted to augment the coaching staff with more experience, with 
Alvin Gentry going to New Orleans. They want to get, like, that's the market inefficiency they want to seize upon. If you recall, that was the big dispute between them and Mark Jackson just, was, we want to bring in great assistant coaches, and Mark wanted to bring in his guys. Right, well, and just to be clear, um, for people that don't know, what you're referring to is when, when Alvin left, uh, Alvin Gentry and Ron Adams were kind of the offense and defensive coordinators in Golden State last year. And when, you, when Alvin Gentry left um, the Warriors to become the Pelicans head coach, um, basically Steve elevated Luke Walton to become the offensive coordinator. I mean, that, that's, a, that's essentially the, the transition, right? Exactly. Okay. And then when Steve, to give more expository, had this back surgery and the resulting complications in his brain from that and couldn't coach, uh, then you had a situation where a 35-year-old Luke Walton is suddenly – uh, just really two years maybe removed from being a D-League uh, player development coach to coaching the team. And there were big worries about that, definitely within the organization, and a feeling of, oh, man, this guy might be in over his head. So the ability for Luke to kind of uh, get a hold on the situation, I think it took him a little time. I don't think he was comfortable at the beginning. I think I asked Kerr about it, and he said that he, he mastered it in, uh, in 10 games that he got it down in 10 games. The ability to do that uh, and, and you know, be a big part of this winning that he won't get credit for because it will just be held up as proof of the team being great, I think that was really impressive. And uh, that was the general impressiveness. And if I'm going to isolate a moment of impressiveness, it was the comeback against the Clippers because being down 23 on the road, and then did they win by seven, I believe? I mean, that's just that's, that's nuts. I think that, you're that right. Was, that, yeah, that was that was incredible to see. Just the power, the firepower of that small ball lineup uh, that they use at the end of games with uh, Curry, Clay Thompson, Andre Godala, Harrison Barnes, and Draymond Green. Uh, the way that they just blitzed in the fourth quarter, the Clippers. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think they outscored them by 17 in the final six minutes. That was impressive. Yeah, I don't remember where I was. Um, it's, it's, I mean, I've been I transitioned from this job to a pre, from a previous one where uh, I was covering the Nets and traveling, and I was in some hotel room um, watching that game, and I just was in awe of that lineup. I mean, that lineup's been great all season long. Um, it's been, you know, you can argue it's one of the best lineups ever in the league at the rate it's producing. But um, the way they played in that that Clippers game, like you said, like they just basically decided that. Not only was uh, Los Angeles not going to score again, but they were just going to score every trip. And they just, I mean, I, I don't, it, they might have outscored them by 17. It might have even been more than that. I mean, they just, it just was, that game got over. Um, that game went from being looking like a loss to an a, a emphatic win in a millisecond, it seemed like. It was, mm. it was really impressive. Now, um, what is the Walton, is Walton's success maybe the most surprising thing? Also, I was going to ask you if there was a most surprising thing, but it sounds like, um, maybe the way he was able to kind of harness the team and uh, kind of ably step into that coaching role all at once might have been maybe the most impressive and surprising thing about the whole thing. Well, I think uh, a competing surprise and impressive thing is Steph Curry's ability to get even better after his MVP season. It's something that in the preseason uh, I, I said I thought was going to happen, um, and I'm not some sort of psychic. That's not what it is. It's just you can get a glimpse in the preseason uh, of things that are to come. And it was obvious if you look at what Steph did in the preseason and just watched him that he was faster and more explosive and better. And I think we talked about that uh, on the Nate Duncan podcast on the preseason, and some people disagreed and said that we were crazy for thinking that. Uh, but that, that happened, and it happened to an even larger degree than I expected. I don't think I expected him to uh, fire up three extra three-pointers per game without losing any efficiency, in fact, gaining efficiency. So I think what he's been able to do would certainly rank up there. Why do you think he's been able to do that? That's a great question, and it's not one that I've been able to really answer. It's one I've been asking about. It's one I've been asking the coaches about. It's one I've been asking him about. And I think it's one of those things where there are multiple factors. You can't just isolate one. Uh, one of them is that they've gotten better at using back screens. And what I mean by that, uh, for those who don't know, is having their guards, uh, Steph and Clay Thompson, screen for their big men, kind of an inversion of usually big men screen for guards, but they're doing it the opposite way, and it just totally throws a wrench into the defense because people freak out. They want to they help on the guy 
they, they want to like help because Steph is creating a screen, so he's helping get his teammate open, and the other team wants to prevent that, but then they're totally freaked out about leaving Steph, so it just discompobulates everything, and I think it's creating massive gaps in the opposing defense. So there's that, and then it's combined with uh, Steph's training methods and uh, how he's always trying to expand his range and expand what he does. So he's just even more comfortable firing from 30 feet away. I think there's some ridiculous stat of how he's shooting around maybe 70% beyond 28 feet. I have to look that up maybe as we're talking. Uh, So it's just increased confidence from him. And then I also think that there's the confidence that comes from winning the championship that further fuels that. So uh, that combination of factors and maybe some others, I believe, are fueling Steph Curry going up yet another level. Now we're going to talk about Steph later in the podcast, but let, let's just get to it now because that's a great segue. Um, I mean, there, there, it wasn't really that long ago that um, Stephen Curry signed a four-year, $44 million contract that people wondered if the Warriors were going to get, reap the benefits of because he basically you know, had one ankle injury after another through the first few years of his career. And, you know, people thought he was talented, but they didn't know if he was going to be able to stay on the court. I mean, I, he he signed a smaller contract at the time than Ty Lawson, and people didn't think that that was a, a crazy thing. And basically, you know, what, two and a half years later, he's now, um, you know, maybe the best player in the league, uh, the best shooter of all time, reigning MVP. Um, you know, when he when he was uh, playing behind AC Law a few years ago, I'm not even sure what season that was at this point. Um, and even when he signed the contract, could you? Wh- what were your expectations for what he could become? And and was anything close to this anywhere in your mind? I'd have to say no, uh, because when you think back to then, oh, and I just as an aside looked it up, and from beyond twenty eight feet, Steph is seventeen of twenty four this season. That's unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> that's at seventy two percent, something like that. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. I'd have to say no, because you have to really think back to that time and the level of ineptitude of that team and how you couldn't even fathom a Warriors player being an all-star. That, that was something that was crazy. I think the, one, the last one before David Lee, uh, and it really should have been Steph, I think, in 2013, uh, but the last one before him was Latrell Sprewell. So that's how far, far back we're talking. Um, it just wasn't, it wasn't an expectation. And... I think what I've learned is a lesson in how important ownership is and how much that informs what players can do. Because if you have bad, inattentive ownership and incompetence, guys are going to get hurt because nobody's really monitoring anything. They're not spending any amount of money in maintaining the health of these players. And just generally bad things are going to happen. And the talent of the players, it's not going to be optimized. And so... I knew Steph was really great, and I think I wrote about it at the time, that one of the things I appreciated about him is that mired in all the sea of incompetence and awful basketball and failure, there was a great shooter. So there was greatness in one specific aspect, and that was unusual, and that was something that I wanted to see sustained. And I believed that he was better than I think a lot of people did just by virtue of being around and being awake. Uh, at, at you know ten past ten p.m. on the West Coast, seeing the games that weren't on national TV because nobody cared about this team um, it, all that much. So I definitely thought he was a better player than Monte Ellis. That that's hilarious to think back to is, is that that was a debate. Yeah, that was a huge was. debate. That was a huge debate yeah. at the time. Who who should the Warriors choose, Monte Ellis or Stephen Curry? I mean, that's mind blowing now, but it but it's true. That was a real debate, especially in the Bay Area, because you know to your point. Um, the Warriors were a team that was kind of in a fallow period. And, you know, Monte really was kind of the the guy that the fan base had really latched onto as, as their guy at that time. Definitely. And I think with Monte, Monte is one of those guys where there's a cumulative effect to him, where if you see him once, you might be excited and you might like him, right? And if you see him maybe twice, you'll really like him and there'll be some highlights. But if you see him for an entire season – and in another entire season, not fun to watch. Not not fun to watch at all. Just the constant mistakes on defense, pounding the ball, uh, dominating it, not not making smart passes, not getting teammates involved, and just also from a covering perspective of the team and covering the team, personality-wise, uh, Steph I think was just a lot easier to deal with and seemed like somebody with more of a future. So I definitely believe that Steph had more of a 
more of a future and that they shouldn't do something like trade him for Rondo, as, as some suggested back then. But this, I don't think anybody expected this. I've talked to people in Steph's camp, and they've had to concede that, hey, we always thought he was good. We always thought he was better than other people figured, but we didn't expect this. The thing, though, is I think Steph kind of did, and that's what's allowed him in many ways to ascend as he has, is this self-belief and this self-confidence that other people really might have reasonably thought was delusional at other points in his life. And and I was going to ask you about the thing that, uh, because you've you've known him basically since his rookie year, and I was going to ask you what is the thing about him that people might not realize, but I I think you probably are just going to say what you just did, which is that I don't think people quite realize how cocky and um, and confident, like beyond confident, Stephen Curry is in himself. Um, and, and yeah. Up into including, you know, him probably thinking, yeah, I can be the best player in the league when literally no one else on the planet would have thought that. Or just, I can make the NBA. When you look at a picture of him in middle school or a picture of him in high school, that is not a reasonable thing to think. Heck, even a picture of him in college. Yeah, it's not, it's not reasonable, but he was correct and he knew about it. And you can see that I've, I've had two moments uh, in the past few months where one of them was that New Orleans Pelicans comeback where they were down, I believe, 17 with six minutes to go. And that was in game three, uh, game three of that yeah. series, right? Game three, and he hit that tying shot over Anthony Davis and another another guy. I can't remember. It wasn't Cunningham. Who was it? I think it, it was Maybe Quincy Pondexter. Yeah, I think it was Quincy Pondexter. That's a good memory, Tim. And he got fouled <laughs> on the play, too, which is incredible. That, that, that's a very good memory. Um but after the game, David Lee, I think, asked me if I thought that it was over and they weren't going to win. And I, of course, said, well, yeah. And Steph was almost incredulous. And he, he said, you really didn't think we were going to win? And he wasn't even really teasing me. Like, he, he really, I think, thought the whole time that they were going to win. And after this game in Milwaukee, for instance, I asked Raymond, I asked, what was the moment that you knew it was over and you knew the streak was done? And Raymond started going into his explanation and Steph, because they have neighboring lockers, interjected when Coach subbed us out. And then he started laughing because it is ridiculous. Because if you think back to that moment, there's about a minute left, they're down 11, and Michael Carter-Williams is about to shoot two free throws. So even at that point, Steph believed that they were going to win the game. And I think he's dead serious about that. Oh, I, I totally completely serious. I totally agree, because I was, I was not in Milwaukee. I was watching in New York, getting ready to write my column about the end of the streak. And the, the defining image of the end of that game for me was with about two seconds left, the clock's running out, and they cut to Steph, and he's just staring at the scoreboard. And mm-hmm. he looked like he didn't – It was you could see in his brain it was still barely processing that they hadn't won the game. Even though the game had been over for most of the fourth quarter, their legs just ran out of gas. They all their shots were short. They weren't going to come back. And you know, it was just amazing even at that point after he'd been taken out of the game to watch him sit there and try to um come to grips with the fact that you know this had ended. And even then at that point, um they just were never like it, it just it the, the fact that they could lose um just it doesn't enter their minds and Andrew Bogut said Andrew Bogut told me after the the Boston game he said look you know after last year the way we were able to go and win a championship you know there's there's a belief in this room that it doesn't matter what the score is you know we're going to win every game and just being around those guys a little bit you know that that is the way they think like they they just assume until the clock hits zero they're going to win every single game and it's a it's a really remarkable it's a really remarkable thing to watch uh, watch unfold as you as you see them, you know, kind of take over games like they did in that Boston game. I mean, in the Boston game, they got outplayed for, what, 80 percent of that game, probably. But at the end of yeah, the game, they, get... they just decided they weren't going to lose. And then they won. Well, and that's what Draymond said after the Milwaukee game, which is, look, we know how to win. And that's been getting us by, but we haven't been playing our best basketball. And we've been slipping in that way and just relying on, OK, emergency situation, we'll pull it out and we'll do what we do. Uh, but that's that's a lot of it, is that particular confidence. And then when the other team gets tight, they are not tight. And they believe that they are going to seize it. And we just have seen that happen time and time again. Now we're going to get back to, we'll get back to Steph in a second. But what, what, um, what do you, speaking of that, what do you think is going to happen next for this team? I mean, you wrote a great piece um, Saturday night, kind of basically, 
you know, using that Draymond quote to kind of say, all right, now the regular season can start for this team after this unbelievable start. But what what do you think is next for these guys? Um, are, are, do you think they're going to – is there going to be some kind of a hangover from this? Or, cause, or do you think that, you know, a loss is kind of good and they can, you know, to your, to your point, kind of reset things and look at what they've been doing and realize they haven't been playing that great even though they've been winning. And, you know, maybe they'll somehow even be doing better than they were over the last week. Yeah, I – what Brian Windhorst told me is that the Heat experienced the letdown after their streak was over and after that was uh, that, that wasn't in front of them. But I think it's a slightly different situation in that this streak happened earlier. So you have to focus on the season. It's not right before the playoffs. So I would expect them to sharpen up some things uh, in the way that Draymond talked about it. They think I, I also think they need to get Harrison Barnes back to be truly sharp. Uh, so it's not just going to be a matter of focus and of effort. But... I, I think maybe you see a letdown for a game or two, and this is pure guesswork, and they'll sharpen up. I would expect sharper basketball, I guess is what I'm saying, um, in this opportunity they have where there are only five games in 17 days. Now, when is, when is Harrison Barnes has been out for a while with a sprained ankle? Is he, is he going to be back anytime soon, like within a week or two, or are we thinking even longer than that at this point? I heard some rumors that it might stretch to January. But it's very difficult to know because I am not a doctor and I don't have uh, access. Uh, I don't have access to whatever medical files he might have. It's disappointing. I know that Draymond Green's mom. <laughs> what did you say? Disappointing reporting work by you. I know it's bad reporting. I know Draymond Green's mom, who's a much better reporter than I am, uh, said that he was walking around and looked great. I, I believe uh, before the the Milwaukee game, and so they might be cautious with it. He's walking fine. He looks fully ambulatory i can say that much and he's uh doing shooting practice and everything else so i even despite the early rumors of january i think he'll be back sometime in december and my prediction will be sometime before the christmas day game and as an aside i really enjoy whenever uh draymond's mom goes after you on twitter like she did during <laughs> the boston game it really it, i think she, it's hilarious it's that really she great. thinks i pick on do you think it's equally hilarious that she thinks I pick on Draymond Green, like of all people? Yes. I, I thought that was so funny. That is that is my favorite part about it, because you love no one on the team, including Steph, more than Draymond Green. You you adore <laughs> him, and you ca- you talk to him every chance you get. So the fact that she thinks you're somehow out to get him is uh, is fantastic, especially since you were the one, I think, who was probably the first person advocating for him to start. So, I mean, you've been in his corner longer than anybody. I don't know if I'm the first person. I was an early adopter. I think the guy who deserves credit is Evan Zamir, uh, who has a stat site, NBA Wowie, and uh, he's been a, he, he was the first on the Draymond bandwagon. I think back as a rookie when Draymond was shooting badly. But um, what's fun about Draymond's mom is that <laughs> I loved how somebody, I think, came to my defense, and then she, she sort of clapped back at them saying, hey, no, you shut up. Ethan and I do this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like this is just our thing, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And you know, he what I like about him too is if you criticize him, it's not going to be passive aggressive. He's going to come at you, and you can hash it out. I remember, and I, I said something back in summer league after his rookie year with the way he was shooting. He was shooting horribly, and uh, I, I said that if he wasn't already on the team, he'd have trouble making it the way he was shooting. He did not take well to that. And, you know, but we had to talk it out. And I would much prefer a player do that than with some guys where they're going to just resent you and be passive aggressive forever. Totally agree. As someone who is around guys and in the locker room, it's a million times better if a guy has a problem with you to just say to you, hey, what the heck were you doing writing that? Like, I'd much rather have somebody come up to me and say that or some GM or a coach as opposed to, like you said, kind of passive aggressively, just not answering questions, or um, you know, kind of just not really giving you the time of day. Um, you know, when you're when you're around like that, and and you know, you're the same way. You know, if your name is on something as a writer, you know, you stand by what you write. So if somebody has a problem with that with me, I'm more than happy to talk about it. And if you don't want to talk to me about it, then don't complain about it because I'm there. You know, especially like you as a beat guy, you're there all the time. So it's not like they have to look to find you. So, you know, if they got a problem, they can come they can come talk to you about it. Now, I wanted to get back to something with Steph that you um, that you you kind of been in a debate about on Twitter for at least a couple of days. 
um, mm-hmm. which is which is about his popularity. I, I think there's no question that he is the most popular player in the league at the moment. Um, his jerseys are selling like crazy, and um, you know people are flocking to arenas to to watch his shoot arounds and uh, or his his, his warm up routines before games. I mean. And, uh, you know, he's kind of the, the face of this Warriors team that has become the most popular team in the league. Um, but you, you've been on a, a bit of a, a Twitter rampage saying that, um, that there's no way that LeBron James has ever been as popular as Stephen Curry. And I was just curious why you think that's the case. Well, I think it's one of those situations. I, I, I have a theory that a lot of the really intense debates on Twitter are just about semantics. And in this case, I'm defining it as popularity, not as fame. Because I think some people disagreed, and they're, what they're responding to is this idea of fame. And maybe that's just the Kim Kardashian generation, where you conflate notoriety with popularity, um, and they're not really the same thing. But I would say, you're, you're, you were on the circus, you were on it, and it's crazy, and I'm not sure it really has precedent. And the response I got, a lot of it was that you are in this bubble, you are in this barrier area bubble, you're crazy, you're drunk, everything else. I am not in this barrier area bubble. I've been on a two-week adventure touring the United States of America. And what I'm seeing in these arenas is unlike anything I've ever seen before, where half of the arena is cheering for, for, for Steph, where thousands of people in some places are showing up to watch his shooting routine, where the Boston Celtics... Uh, their CSN feed is live streaming an opposing player's shooting routine. Now, imagine them doing that for Le- uh, LeBron James. It's a little bit different because he's a rival, of course. But since when do Boston fans ever like anything that's not Boston? You know, since when does that happen? So if we're just talking about popularity as opposed to fame, because there's a different dynamic with LeBron who is hated, uh, I-, I think Steph wins that. And it's one of those situations where, by virtue of the team I write about, People make certain assumptions, but I think I'm just telling you the sky is blue because I don't know how people are consuming sports uh, if they really think otherwise on this. The peak of LeBron's popularity, and we have data to show it, I wrote about it at the time. I wrote an article, Mind of the Fan, where we, uh, at ESPN, we have survey data where they're constantly surveying people. The peak of his popularity was actually right when he chose the Cavs that season, when he chose the Cavs uh, and came back home and though he had lost the finals, he had played quite well, and it was blameless. That season, the season that was to be LeBron's homecoming, the celebration, the coronation of LeBron, Steph had more all-star votes, and he had, at the end, more jersey sales, and that was before all this. So I'm not sure how we're defining popularity if we think at any point LeBron was ever more popular than Steph Curry is now. So I guess it's fair to say that the way you would frame this argument is that LeBron James has always had a higher level of fame than Stephen Curry, but that mm-hmm. but that Curry is uh, is now has a higher level of popularity than LeBron has ever had. That that's it, and I think that NBA fans, hardcore NBA fans, might lose sight of that because they are they are a different demographic than the American sports consumer, right? And so, if you're a hardcore NBA fan, maybe you just love LeBron because. He, maybe because he was a bit of an anti-hero, right? And that, that avid NBA fan has different tastes, perhaps, than just the average American sports fan. And you might not know, speaking of bubbles, how Joe in Idaho feels about Steph Curry versus LeBron James. And I think Joe in Idaho uh, loves Steph, loves seeing this little guy shoot threes. He seems like he has a good family. He seems like a nice kid. He's not a kid, but people think of him as a kid just because of his appearance uh, versus LeBron where that's a much more fraught relationship and how they reacted to him over the years. I agree completely. And I, I think you're right that the, the thing that, that makes Steph Curry stand out is he looks like a normal human being. Now you're, yeah. if you're around NBA players, you get used to how big they are, but LeBron James is a gigantic human being. He's a six, nine, he's 265 pounds. I mean, he's, he's essentially Rob Gronkowski, except he's a few inches taller. And people think Rob Gronkowski is some kind of mutant being. And LeBron is probably faster than him and stronger than him. So, you know, it, 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 Steph Curry is six, two ish, might even be a little shorter than that. And looks like he walked out of the Y onto the court. 
compared to a lot of these other guys. And he's throwing up 30-footers. And, you know, it's it's easy for somebody to go stand 25 feet away from the basket and chuck up shots and pretend to be Stephen Curry. It's another thing to be able to dunk from the foul line like LeBron and do all the crazy athletic things that LeBron can do. So I, I agree with you, and I, I do think he is more popular just in purely popularity terms. I don't think he'll ever quite reach the level of – well, I shouldn't say quite. I don't think I shouldn't say ever. I don't know if he'll ever reach the level of fame that LeBron has because he's just been kind of a unique force ever since he was in high school. Um, but, yeah, but I mean the way the ratings they got on his televised decision just to choose teams was, I mean that like that was crazy. Well, that was you know, a nationwide that, event. I mean that was I yeah. at my old job at the New York Post. I had to go to a bar in New York and watch that, and then go interview people on the street outside of Madison Square Garden who were losing their minds that he chose to go to the Miami instead of New York. Like that, yeah. That just that whole process that that's even possible is unbelievable. Really now. I was around that. I mean, I wrote um, for the Washington Post on Saturday that the Golden State Warriors are the biggest and best show in sports and have eclipsed the NFL. So I agree with you that um, the Warriors are a a pretty unique situation um, in terms of uh, viewership from fans and the way they're they're viewed. Uh, I do think that the Heat, especially that first season, um, were, were a similar circus. I had to cover some stuff with those early Miami teams, and that the the reaction to those teams was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, everywhere they went, it was it was like what you experienced these last two weeks for eighty two games. I mean, just uh-huh. everywhere they went was just a giant event. But I also think you know it's also a different scenario because that team was kind of this you know super villain team of mega stars put together to dominate the NBA and they they were kind of viewed as this you know almost mythical team at that point that well how is anybody going to beat this team we got to go watch them play Um, then they get off to a bit of a slow start and people get you know think well hey maybe they're not going to be any good Um, so I think there was a lot of other dynamics at play there whereas this Golden State team to your point is just unbelievably popular and there there isn't any ill will towards them anywhere wherever they go it's just this you know, traveling party where everyone's, oh, look, the Warriors are here. This is great. We're going to go watch them, and we'll go watch Steph. And, you know, even if our team loses to them, we're going to be happy because the Warriors are this fun-loving bunch, and who doesn't want to root for them? And uh, I, I do think in that sense it's it's hard to find a comparison for them because even, like, the Jordan Bulls had a lot of people that didn't like them. And, you know, you can kind of go the, the Lakers with Kobe and Shaq. Like, all of these teams had had – significant portions of the public that didn't want them to win. And it really feels like unless you're specifically rooting for the team they're playing, everyone wants the Warriors to win all the time because they're just all they're just always fun to watch. I think they'll attract some enmity eventually because if you beat people's teams then they start to dislike you and I think that started up a little bit. But if we're just talking again about Joe sports fan, no, he just he just likes them and I think uh, it's a little like the Jordan Bulls. I, I don't remember how disliked or, or liked they were, but I feel as though they were more loved. And it's a different dynamic than with the Heat, and that was huge as, as far as there being a villain. But I think it gives them... I have a theory that a villain a villain can really capture attention and be a great storyline, but a hero has a higher ceiling, right? I think Michael Jordan as a hero has a higher ceiling than LeBron as a villain. And maybe LeBron as a hero, if he brings championships to Cleveland, has a higher ceiling than LeBron on the Heat. And so I think there's still more room for growth for this team, as big a circus as it's become, as big as the coverage has been, to make inroads because the NBA is, well, it's not a niche sport. It is a little off to the side in comparison to the NFL. And there are still more fans out there in the United States to convert. No, you're totally right. And and look, if the if the Warriors manage to repeat as champions this season and they go into next season with a chance at a three-peat, something that, I don't know, four or five teams have ever done, um, if that, I guess maybe the Bulls, Lakers, and Celtics might be the only teams that have ever done that. Um, so if they have a chance to, to make that kind of history and they, and, you know, if they do somehow, then... Yeah, they're going to be they're going to become an all-time team. And it also helps that they're in a gigantic market where there isn't another team competing for their, their attention. Um 
and and they they do kind of um they do they do kind of have a chance to to really become a a legendary franchise which is remarkable given where the franchise was a few years ago and is a big reason why I want to have you on the podcast so you you when did you start covering this team as a a blogger or a writer um and being around them in the locker room on a daily basis well uh i think around 2010 was the first time that i that i started showing up and basically i didn't plan on becoming a sports writer i i wanted to go into journalism journalism and do reporting and i had been doing odd jobs in relation to that i had in college an internship at the village voice um, and I was writing for a political publication that I think has kind of gone off the rails, so I don't even like referencing them uh, as much these days, but I was writing for them, and on the side, just because I was a big basketball fan, I think I, I was reading Golden State of Mind, that, that fan blog. I'd been reading it for years, and I, I, I was just you know doing comments, and then people said, hey, that's a really good comment, and then eventually Warriors World, which was uh, attached to the ESPN True Hoop blog network said, hey, we need a writer. And I figured, why not? You know, I enjoy, I just enjoy writing. I enjoy, I enjoy watching basketball and I enjoy writing. And so I submitted and then I just kept writing. And then finally one day they said, hey, we need somebody to go to the games. And again, it was just, hey, why not? And so I started showing up around 2010. And it's funny, there's this discussion of you shouldn't have fans uh, cover teams or you shouldn't have fans uh, write about the team, but I think that showing up kind of destroys your fandom in a way, right? You get cynical quick. You, the dynamic, you're alerted to the dynamic quick. For me, the first thing was uh, I, I was asking certain questions of, of Keith Smart, who was coaching the team, and he stormed up to me after a press conference and yelled, why do you hate Monte? And he just starts getting really angry at me about it. And then there was this sense of, whoa, my television is leaping out. Like, this guy is essentially, in my mind, leaping out of the television I've been watching and is yelling at me. And that changes the dynamic. And you realize that, that this isn't that. That you are not a fan anymore um, and you are not participating emotionally in that way. And so, really, that's how I started was just being around the sadness of the key smart warriors and seeing him get slowly fired as he made bad coaching decisions and bad political decisions that I, even as dumb as I was at that time, I could have told him not to make. Well, and, and that's a good point. And, and, you know, we mentioned before about how you kind of learn what real NBA life is like when you have to travel with the team. You're also very right about what happens if you're at least, you know, any, if you're competent at all, um, covering a team um, because it, you are dealing with human beings. And I think if you're watching on your television at home, it's easy to turn these guys into, you know, godlike figures in a lot of ways. Yeah. But when you're when you build a relationship with Draymond Green or Stephen Curry or, you know, Steve Kerr, or Andrew Bogut, and you're around these guys every day. It doesn't take long to figure out that they're just regular human beings with regular human being problems. Like they might come to work one day and they had a fight with their wife in the morning or their kid might be sick or, you know, their car broke down or whatever. And, you know, it it does it, you do quickly realize that, you know, we obviously have great jobs and watching basketball for a job is pretty awesome. But it's also a job. And you you see that you're just kind of working with these guys like coworkers and you know that it just you kind of settle into that relationship pretty quickly and you do kind of lose the um the aura of it and oh this is you know this is kind of an awe-inspiring thing to be around and and you you start to root for yourself you root for uh better travel situations you root for in the playoffs you'd rather have them play a certain team because you'd rather go to that city or it'd be an easier trip to make or you'd rather root for a series to end earlier so you can get home sooner um, you know, that all that kind of stuff just kind of inevitably happens over time. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny, too, because people then project fandom onto you, and they're using their method, their methodology of interacting with the game, not realizing perhaps that you have all these other considerations that are really informing what you want. And you can't blame them. Like, why should they care about you and what's going on in your head? But I've always been amused by that. I've always been amused by fans projecting fandom 
on the people covering the team. And another thing, I don't know if it's amused, but it's interesting to me too to then see it from this perspective of how there are people who cover the league um, and some fans uh, who interact with the league where they'll defend these players uh, who might not be the greatest guys to deal with, like the man is keeping them down, and you just know if these people actually had to deal with these particular guys, they would detest them. And I've always been amused by that. No, totally. You're totally right about that. Um, and and I think I think you probably have gotten more grief about the the fan connection than a lot of people because you did kind of come up from a fan fan site and kind of graduate into. I mean, graduating might sound condescending, but um, yeah. but but you you true though. But you, well, you're right. You've moved into this job and you're you're doing a fantastic job at it, but. Um, you know, I, I do think you, in a situation like yours or like Royce Young in Oklahoma City or, you know, a, you know, a bunch of other spots, um, you know, I, I do think it's fair, uh, or I, I shouldn't say it's fair. I do think it's, um, I, I do think that's where, that, yeah, I think it's understandable where people would come from with that, even if it's not true. Um, and it, and it, and it, it does make a situation for someone like you where you maybe have to defend yourself more than, than you should, even though you're probably constantly annoying, uh, you, you know, you're constantly getting in disagreements with people inside the organization because you're covering the team, and that's well, that's the well, way that's things work. Well, that's what's funny too is you get it, you get it from both ways, right? And you've you've probably had this experience numerous times too, where uh, people might be accusing you of trying to uh, acquiesce to the team or being infatuated with the team. Meanwhile, people on the team are angry at you for uh, for being negative. And I, I think a lot of it is, I, I can't complain too much. It's not that big a deal if people think this or that about me or why I'm saying this or that. I think a lot of it is just the Internet is a flood of information, and people are looking for easy shortcuts to dismiss information they don't like. So they're just going to seize upon the first thing if you're saying something they don't like. If they want their team to succeed and they don't want the team you're covering to succeed, they're going to seize upon, aha, you're saying that because such and such. You're saying that because you love this team. And so it's just really a filtration method, I think. I think people are just trying to be efficient, and that's what a lot of it comes from. Well, people want our jobs, too. I mean, let's be honest, right? Like, we have really great jobs, and how many people sit at home thinking, yeah, I could I could just go write about this team. I don't, what does this guy know? You know? I mean, yeah, I this think guy can't even use his map on his iPhone. <laughs> like, clearly I should be doing this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, now let, let I want to go back because I do want to talk about the, uh, the the dark ages for a minute. So so you show up in 2010 and and Keith Smart is there, um, you know, doing Keith Smart things and you know there's the whole Monte Steph debate and Steph can't stay healthy and you know there there's just chaos everywhere. Um, when when did you start to see a change in in the Golden State Warriors organization and when did you start to think, hey, maybe things are finally going to be different here? That's that's a great question because things happen things happen slowly and then they're more obvious in retrospect. And I could clearly see the change in ownership because Chris Cohan was a hermit. You never saw him. You just never saw him. He'd gone in hiding. He'd been shamed by what had happened. I think he had some other demons chasing him. So it was very frustrating. It was very frustrating to from the fan perspective earlier, just have nobody answering to anything that was happening. And also in being a hermit, leaving this power vacuum. And when there's a power vacuum in the NBA, uh, it's a very competitive place. And so the knives come out and then people start, people start backstabbing and just trying to reach for what power there is in a bad organization. And so it it was just bad times. And I, I remember, and I think I'd started blogging about the team. I remember Don Nelson calling uh from uh calling from indiana i think in the daytime slurring his words saying that he had been drinking scotch and then saying that they were trying to trade stephen jackson but it was just hard as hell because nobody wanted him like that was the level of chaos happening in the organization wait a minute wait a minute would he call the radio station and did that i don't even remember that yeah he did i think it was kmbr um it was kmbr he said he was drinking scotch I, I maybe I'll, I'll look this up in the background as we continue this conversation. So a lot of these types of things were happening off the national radar. Uh, this is nobody cared because they were losing, but they were also just a pathetic, a pathetic. We used the term circus earlier in a positive way. This was the negative kind of circus. 
So when Lacob took over, you could clearly see that finally somebody owned the team who cared. And I think that's half the battle. Obviously, you can care and mess things up. Some would say that Vivek has been doing that uh, down in Sacramento. But that was a shift. And then there was a secondary shift, obviously, after the firing of Mark Jackson, where you could tell that the coaching staff was so much better and that there was more of a sense of collective responsibility as opposed to people being insecure and fighting over the credit. Now, I want to talk about Mark Jackson. Um, I think we both agree that the, the Warriors made a significant upgrade when they got Steve Kerr on a lot of levels. But with that being said, does he deserve some credit, any credit, no credit for what's happened? Or was 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 this going to happen no matter who the coach was before Steve Kerr? And was this only was this transformation only going to happen when it, when a guy like Steve Kerr or some other significant upgraded coach took over? I think he deserves some credit because of the way he handled Steph. Now, before before Mark took over, Keith Smart, I I really I, my mind is boggled at how he handled the whole situation with Steph and handled it in general. He he overcoached whenever Steph would have a turnover or two. Uh, a bad turnover as as he hey we mentioned it in Boston it doesn't go away the guy has uh he's a very creative confident player and he sometimes has some crazy turnovers so smart would just bench him and it was a bad situation he would bring in AC law uh, uh it was actually funny after Steph's 53 point game in New Orleans this season Keith Smart called Warriors PR to congratulate Steph via them uh, I, I guess not having his number, probably, I'm assuming. Um, That's amazing. And, uh, and, That's an amazing and, and, story. He really So, wait a minute. So, Keith Smart really called Ray Ritter and said, I need you to tell Steph congratulations on winning or on scoring 53 points tonight? It was that or a text message, and it was funny because upon learning about it, Steph laughed and said, oh, yeah, well, I could feel AC Law breathing down my neck, so that helped inspire me to do the performance. I don't think that there's a... A lot of warmth between Steph and Keith Smart, or Steph and AC Law, for that matter. So that was that scenario back then. And when Mark took over, he just let Steph have freedom. He believed in him, he talked him up, and he let him explore his talent and his creativity. And that was huge, I think, in the growth of him, uh, which was huge for the team as well. So I think uh, Mark deserves credit for that. But obviously, and we can see this looking back on it, there was a ceiling to that particular approach. And I think what happened was there was some insecurity there and worry about his job and other people who might be getting credit under him. And then that just became this untenable civil war eventually. And they really benefited from moving on from that to Kerr, who just stocked up on really talented, sharp people working for him and didn't worry if they were getting credit. And that is one thing I've wondered about with Mark Jackson is is he he really seemed to be the person that instilled the belief in this team like that self belief in Steph maybe and and even in Clay Thompson and some of these other guys like he was the one saying long before anybody else that that Steph and Clay were the greatest shooting backcourt of all time and you know he you know that might that was probably his one real skill as a coach was kind of the you know instilling that kind of belief in the team. I mean, is it is it fair to say that 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 I'm not saying he created that in Steph Curry, obviously he's a confident player before that, but is that is that maybe the thing that he really brought to the table for them was was kind of making them all believe in themselves that way? Yeah, I think he built the culture that way since he was such in his words very uh, pugilistic and very bombastic. It kind of informed the confidence and the way they comport themselves today. Now, they do it with much better organization and much better offensive plays. Uh, but that sort of, yeah, we're the best shooting backcourt. We're going to fling up you know, 30-foot shots like that's how you're supposed to play. Uh, I think that was built in many ways uh, from Mark and his personality. So there was a foundational aspect to that that he should get some credit for. Now you, now, you famously last year were the only person at ESPN, and maybe the only person anywhere, to pick Golden State to win the championship, um, which you, you were very happy to, uh, to point out, and, have, and people were very happy to point out to you as the year went on, because it was a great, it was uh-huh. a great call. Um, w- w- you mentioned um, saying uh, to Nate about how Steph was going to be better this year, in your opinion. 
um, from seeing stuff in the preseason. And if I remember right, stuff that you saw in the preseason last year was why you made that call. So what what did you see um, through those you know six or seven preseason games that led you to think, all right, bringing in Steve Kerr and the changes he's going to make uh, to this team is going to be the difference that's going to lift this team to a championship. Yeah, so it, you were right about that. It was it was the preseason. That's a lot of what you see now with just the movement and the dribble handoffs. If you remember with Mark, there was a lot of just feed it into the post and post up, and there wasn't a lot of man movement and ball movement. I know Jerry West had a complaint about how they were the worst passing team in the league. They might have had the fewest passes per possession. So suddenly you're just seeing the ball whip around, and amazing things happen, and it's almost like watching somebody – go from walking on their hands to suddenly walking on their feet for the first time. It was visually jarring to behold. And if you look at the numbers, too, they were absolutely killing. And I know that you're not supposed to care about preseason, but it was clear that this was a different thing that was on the horizon. And I would not have picked them to, uh, I would not have picked them to make the finals. I wouldn't have picked them to get to the conference finals uh, before seeing that preseason. And then in making the pick, the only real hurdle to it was this feeling of, and this goes back to some of the issues we talked about before, I, I want to be honest. I, I value honesty, and I honestly felt like they were going to be the best team. But I knew how that would be perceived if I said as much and if I, if I made that prediction. And it's silly because it's just a prediction and it doesn't matter. But I knew that if it failed, I would really have to own that, and the criticism for why it did it would be an obvious criticism. But I kind of just had to keep myself honest and make that prediction, and this idea that I would do it in any way to try to garner some sort of favor I think is silly because it's not like Bob Myers is going to see that and go, oh, you picked us to win the championship and raise the expectations for what I'm supposed to do for my job. I love you. Here's all the access you want. You know, that's not (laughs) going to happen. It was really kind of a no-win pick unless they won the title, and even then, even then I hear from people who will say, you just thought that because, you know, you're a homer of course, disregarding how I haven't really picked them before to uh, to do better than they've done. You know, I didn't pick them to win the Denver series back when they won that series. I didn't pick them to win the Clippers series. But then you get into this whole rigmarole uh, where you try to prove uh, you try to prove how you're not as bad as people think you are, and then people just resent you more, and it's just a spiral. So I guess I'll just get out of that by saying, hey, you know, I just tried to be honest. I picked it, and it worked out, and yeah, that's that's okay. That that's that's there's the existential Ethan moment we needed to have to uh, to get on the podcast at some point since you have to have one in every conversation so that's good <laughs> now now I'm in San Antonio this week for some work um so I want to I want to transition quick before we go into um you know obviously look the Warriors are 24 and one they won the championship they're the favorites to win again there's a good chance they will again however let's just step back for a second and when you look around the league. Who are the teams that you think can realistically beat them in the playoffs? And are there any teams that you think, not that they're going to be, they're not scared to play anybody, but are there any teams that you think that they would either like to avoid or if they met them, you know, they might not be entirely certain that things would work out in their favor? The Spurs are the big looming threat on the horizon. That's, that's really the big one. Now, I can see a scenario where maybe the Cavs can do it and maybe the Thunder can do it, but I would put them as fairly heavy underdogs. The Spurs are different. The Spurs might even have a mental edge because the last time the Warriors came to San Antonio, they got smacked. And it it was a situation where the coaches said, when we play this team, we're going to have just a monster film session on this. I even started trying to report. I started trying to report that and just start gathering string, as they say, for this upcoming battle that never actually happened. So the Spurs, with their fantastic defense, with how they're trying to go big as the Warriors are going small, that is the team. That is threat number one, number two, and number three. As much as I I see a lot of people obsessing over the Christmas game, and of course it's on ESPN, so everybody should watch it and all that. Um, And, you know, a, a lot of Cavs fans obsessing over it. I don't think the Warriors are thinking about the Cavs. I don't think they are. I think the Spurs are the main hurdle, and there's a bit of a division, I think, where some people in the organization, especially ones with Suns ties, who were with that Suns uh, Suns team that swept the Spurs in the playoffs, might have a little more confidence. Uh, but I like how I like how Kerr 
when he was asked about the Spurs last season and which bracket the Warriors might want to be in and if they would want to be in the bracket that the Spurs were not in, uh, quipped, I want them to be in the East. So, yes, they are They are the big threat. Well, and let's be honest. The one thing you didn't mention there, too, is they might be the only team in the league with two guys that can guard Clay and Steph. They have yes. Danny Green yeah. and they have Kawhi Leonard. And, don't, and like it, you know, I mean, I would love to see Kawhi Leonard just be stuck on Steph Curry for seven games. I mean, we were, we were talking the other day. That's all I want from this season. Like, no offense to the Thunder or the Cavs or any other team. I just want those two teams to play a seven-game series because that – that will be truly fascinating on a dozen levels to watch how that plays out. The job he did on Clay Thompson when they faced each other in the 2013 playoffs was just brutal. Remarkable. It was brutal. Um, and I think Clay had this huge game, and then they had Kawhi focus on him more. And this is why you probably won't see if this happens, Kawhi on staff a whole lot, and it will be mostly Clay. And let me look at, there's this stat from this. Uh, Clay Thompson, in the first game of the six-game series, shot three free throws. Uh, how many do you think he shot in the remaining five games of that series? Two. He didn't shoot a single one. I, was, I, I assumed it was either one, two, or zero. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He got completely shut down. Completely shut down. Now, you know, in one of those games, he also went off for, uh, for 34 points without a free throw, which was very Clay Thompson of that era, um, but he played 47 minutes. But, you know, just he was completely destroyed in the remaining games. I think he had 17 points, 10 points, 4 points, 10 points. So I think you will see Kawhi on Clay, and Clay has obviously evolved as a player since that point and will probably do a better job of it. I don't know, even if... Uh, Kawhi, he, he certainly caused havoc in the moments that he was guarding Steph when they went to San Antonio. I don't know if it will work out as well for the Spurs and that happens as people might assume because at, even though Kawhi is fantastic at cutting off penetration, he's good at getting around screens. All Steph needs is a little bit of daylight off the screen to shoot it. And it's not like Kawhi Leonard has the speed and the agility of, say, Contavious Caldwell-Pope who I think has done the best job on Curry of anybody I've seen. So I'm not sure he'll be as great at that as people might assume, but I certainly want to see it happen. And he'll certainly be a, a considerable threat with the Warriors' ball movement in getting in those passing lanes, and that could really gum up the works. All right, one final question. Uh, they're 24-1. and one. Um, There's really only one thing left in the regular season for them to shoot for, which is to become the second team ever to win 70 games. Can they win 70? Will they try to win 70, and should they try to? They can win 70. I think the trying to win 70 uh, will come more from the players and it will come from the coaches. I know Kerr is somebody who really values uh, he, he values rest and broader perspective, and he's still the head guy in charge, even if he currently isn't coaching the team. And so he is more of the mentality of being uh, – whatever the opposite of penny-wise, pound-foolish is. Pound-wise? I don't know. Anyway, that will be his perspective, but I know that Steph Curry, everybody around him says this, really cares about history, really cares about these goals. He likes uh, setting, setting up competitions for himself. I know he will want to get 70 wins, and he'll be gunning for it if it's within range. And every, every great player is like that, too. Every single great player values history and values their place in it and wants to set as much as possible. So that, um, that doesn't surprise me at all. But all right, Ethan, this has really been great. Um, thanks for the time. Uh, what, where can people find you? Uh, what do you want to plug? They can find me at Sherwood Strauss. I have an article coming out Wednesday about Steph Curry's training methods. I actually, in my own bumbling way, tried some of them. So if you want to laugh at me and oh, read wow. that article. That's going to be great. Yes, yes. So that will be coming out on Wednesday on ESPN.com, somewhere along those lines. And uh, any, any True Hoop TV podcasts or appearances this week? Oh, also? yeah. True Hoop TV will be recording podcasts sporadically as we do. Um, I do a weird alter ego character where I scream a lot. Uh, so that's fun for everybody. I think that that character is liked more than more than I am at this radio, point. Ethan. Yes, 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 yes. So we'll be doing that. Uh, we don't have a fit kind of uh, set schedule for it, but we just recorded one today, uh, just on the podcast with Kevin Arnovitz and Brian Windhorse talking about 
NBA travel and various other NBA things. So check that out if you can. People should definitely check that out. Um, as for me, you can find me at Tim Bontemps on Twitter. You can read my stuff at the Washington Post. And you can now subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, which is great. Uh, it's a Posting Up podcast. You search Posting Up on iTunes, you'll find it. So uh, please subscribe and uh, give it a rating and a review when you go there, and preferably a five-star rating. That would be great. Anything less, you can just leave it off and decide to do it another time. And I'd also like to thank uh, the sports digital editor at the Washington Post, Glenn Yoder, uh, for providing the theme music to the podcast, which is pretty cool. If you like it, you can check it out at uh, glennyodermusic.com. But, all right, Ethan, thanks again for the time, man. Really appreciate it, and uh, enjoy your, your now lengthy stay at home. Thanks for having me, Tim. It was great.